0: Welcome to the WBT. This is the Wrathbearing Trees podcast, our monthly podcast. The Wrathbearing Tree is an online journal that is concerned with confronting violence and trauma in its various manifestations in all walks of human experience. I'm Michael Carson, one of the editors at the Wrathbearing Tree. We have with us today Andrea Williams, one of the other editors, really the chief editor for being truthful here. And then the special guest we have today is Jennifer Orth Villon. She is a really great guest for us to have. She's been a contributor to the Rathbearing Tree multiple times in the past. I think it's is it three times, Jennifer, that you've you've essayed. Yes,
1: started? three okay. three times.
0: Three times, yes. And she has a very special essay here, the Reading Camus in Time of Plague. A little bit about her background. She holds a PhD in comparative literature from Emory University. She curated the W. Wright blog for the official United States World War I Centennial Commission from 2016 to 2019. And if you have not checked out that blog, you should. It's a fantastic look at World War I and the history of World War I through the research and essays of people who have experienced war in the present. And then she's published in a wide variety of places of fiction and nonfiction. She currently lives in Lyon, France, and she teaches literature, philosophy, and communication in international programs, and currently working on a novel or finishing up a novel on World War II experiences of her grandfather as a concentration camp liberator. And I'd love to come back to that at the end of our conversation as your recent New York Times piece dealt with concentration camp liberators. but. Let's first talk a little bit about our essay in May's issue of The Rat-Bearing Tree, which is titled Reading Camus, The Plague in 2020, A Dispatch from Lyon, France. And can you just tell us, Jennifer, because I'm interested overall, a lot of people are writing about Camus right now, right? Mm. There's a plague going on. And so what brought you to Camus? Why, why did you choose to write about him? And what, what, Where did your interest in him come from? And how do you create such an amazing essay?
1: well before I begin I have to say well thank you Andrea and Mike for inviting me and to all the editors at the Rathbury Tree to have me on this show but also to have published me three times so um, I guess if you get published three times in the Rathbaring Tree you get to get, be on a podcast you should make that a yes <laughs> you should make that a little carrot
0: <laughs> you made the cut yeah
1: uh, yes yeah and also I wanted to give a nod to both Andrea and to Mike for their contributions to the blog that you discussed. I reread both of your pieces in preparation today. So maybe we could even make some connections with those two pieces that you wrote, which I was thankful for you to write for my blog too. And before I answer your question, I also want to say that I cannot claim all the credit for this essay. I had a colleague who who is a guy in marketing and video games and music, and I actually challenged him because we were working on so I guess this partly answers your question. So we were teaching in the same international school. It's a small school. So the faculty from different disciplines are pretty close-knit. And so we regularly have conversations with people from the finance program, the marketing program, as well as from people who are teaching literature history. So in a conversation that he and I had, I challenged him to read The, the, the Plague. And so he did. And so in our conversations about, because our university went online. So I'm sure if you know anything about those online classes and the way universities went online, it was the big thing to have to put into place really quickly. So he was reading the plague while we were setting up these classes online. And we ended up having this conversation that drove me to really want to write about the plague. So I have to thank my colleague. He's from England. His name is John. And it looks like his last name is pronounced Tyrell, like the chips, like those nice fancy potato chips. But it's actually, he's Irish and he's taught me how to pronounce it. So it's something really like turrell. Tar- 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 <laughs> but you can say Tyrell for the American purposes. So just that's a nod to him and for his participation and for him being a really good interlocutor for that piece because I couldn't have written it without him. So my interest in Camus didn't just come from this epidemic. I did my doctoral dissertation, which I completed at Emory University. In 2011, and part of the dissertation I did on Albert Camus, and most notably, I did it, I concentrated on the plague, the book The Plague. And so, I looked at in the part of the dissertation about Camus' take on three different issues, and one was on colonialism, the second one was on Nazism, and the other was on Stalinism. And so, I was looking at the way these, these three things are at work in his in the plague, also in some other works. So that's how I became interested. And after I finished my dissertation, I kind of went down some other paths. I didn't really follow up a lot on my research with Camus, but suddenly, right, this is this seemed to be the perfect time to to rediscover Camus. But I, I guess I'll say also that I kind of came back to Camus when I was doing the WW. Wright blog because I reread his novel that he wrote about his father, who, and this is kind of an interesting thing to think about for Memorial Day. his father. Camus' father was killed in World War I, so Camus was living in Algeria, and his father, when he was, I think, two, or maybe not even, I don't, he was really young, went to France, had never been to France before, but went and fought for France, left Algeria, and he was killed, and he was buried in France, so he never knew his father, so this book that he wrote, the, his last book, which was actually found in the wreck of the car that killed him, so this is the 30th anniversary, now it's us 40th anniversary of Camus' death in January. He died in a car crash and in that car crash he was carrying this manuscript about his father and the sort of discovering his father and he never came back from war. And so I did Camus for my dissertation work, but then I kind of kept following up with him since my dissertation ended, but I didn't really feel the sort of necessity to really engage with Camus until this like plague hit.
0: Right, yeah. It all came together I think for that. That's I had no idea that well, one—I had no idea his father was in World War One. That—that blows my mind. That <laughs> did he have a, a stepfather at some point?
1: Not to my knowledge. Camus has a really interesting past. He's very much associated with sort of the very high-level uh, intellectuals in Paris in the nineteen forties, fifties, and sixties. However, he was very different from them in that he was born and raised in Algeria, but basically in poverty. His mother was part Spanish. And she was basically a cleaning lady. And after his father died, right, they, he grew up in poverty, he grew up in, you know, misery in areas of Algeria that were impoverished. So he had a very different upbringing than the sort of some of the other Parisian intellectuals like Sartre, who he was hanging out with in the 50s and 60s. To my knowledge, you know, I don't think, his, I don't think, I don't know, but I have to check, but I'm not sure.
0: Okay, yeah. Is that manuscript available for the book of his father's? uh, Yeah, it's
1: called The
2: First Man.
0: The First Man, okay. Thank you for giving us that background. Andre. do you have anything that you wanted to ask?
2: No, but I just think it kind of explains his, his love of mothers in his literature. He has a lot of strong mother characters who are really fascinating, and in the plague as well, so it's interesting to hear that she had raised him herself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And apparently in the biographies I've read, she was very much like the mother in the plague. She was very quiet, but she showed incredible affection and tenderness for her son, but of course wasn't educated. The reason he was able to pursue studies that were sort of beyond what would one would imagine of someone growing up in that that situation was that he was just really brilliant and his teachers recognized him. He went to school and his teachers recognized his talent and he was cultivated by several teachers who accompanied him on his intellectual journey.
0: It feels like with that background, like it allowed him and all these things that come up in the World War II period, the post-World War II, like a unique perspective than a lot of the other intellectual elite, right? Do you see that in terms of, is it just the background of his class background playing into that? Or how do you think he came to some of those those unique perspectives? Because you mentioned in your dissertation you look at his perspective on colonialism and Stalinism and Nazism, and he finds this kind of this space that is outside of it. And I think you kind of talk about this in your essay a little bit, but how does he kind of situate himself, I guess? Or how do you see that?
1: Well, I think I would say that in Camus' philosophy, he kind of set himself apart from sort of the philosophers who were sort of mainly were about like the rational, the logical, the conceptual. And he was very much faithful to the Greeks. I mean, he really was faithful to this sort of rigorous adhesion to this philosophical discipline, right? And to be thinking always in a very rigorous way. But he also really thought that wasn't all that a thinker could be and that a thinker also had to take into consideration that there was emotion, that there was love, and there were loyalties that make up a a person more than also just like, you know, rationale and logic and I think that the combination set him apart from others. And I also think that's what in some ways also ostracized him because he was ostracized after in the 1950s, he was ostracized from this Parisian intellectual community that was sort of dominant at the time because of, I would probably say because of his, his unwillingness to only allow this sort of logical adhesion to a certain to to dominate him. He was very faithful also to emotion. For example, when Algeria fought for its independence, and this is something he got a lot of criticism for, and it was one of the main reasons he was ostracized from this community, because he did not publicly proclaim that Algeria should have its independence. He had a very interesting view on it. He said that he thought Algeria should remain with France, but that France should act like it did during the resistance. Because for Camus, the French resistance for him was the epitome of the ideal utopian France. When everyone left behind their political motivations, their ideologies, their allegiances, and worked together to combat Nazism. Right, And Camus was a part of that. He was physically very weak because of his lifelong battle with tuberculosis. So he wasn't in sort of armed resistance, but he was an author of Combat, which was, this, was the one, the most influential resistance underground newspaper. And so he really felt like this was France at its best. This was France that rose above, conquered Nazism, and he had a very high hope that this could be the France that would continue to be in the post-World War. And he had a lot of faith in that. And he thought that if France could continue in this way, then that France could accept Algeria for really what it should accept Algeria for is not as a as a colony, but as a real part of France, right? To So instead of not giving full citizenship to Arabs or to the Berbers, right, to, to stop that, to, right? To really integrate all of those different communities into what he saw as France. And so that was his sort of stance on Algeria. But also that stance was kind of illogical too, right, because it was not really what Algeria wanted, but it was also Camus had very big allegiance to Algeria because it's where he grew up, it's where his mother was, and he knew that his childhood, his country that he saw was, was going to be destroyed, and so he, he kind of openly was saying that he, he struggled with that, right? he struggled with this independence issue, even though he knew there, was, there had to be enormous change. So it's complicated.
0: (laughs) Yeah, as it should be. I mean, that, and it's a great word, like struggled, you know? I mean, like he's always struggling with ideas, I feel. Like he's always in that space and he's okay with struggling. And I think that's why everyone I can imagine wants to misunderstand him at that time. To be in that space where you're constantly struggling and you don't have an answer is a a difficult place to be for people to understand.
1: Right. And I think that's interesting you point out because there are a lot of people who, you know, whether they read Camus, like, in high school, he's so often pigeonholed in different kinds of things. Like, um, some people see him as this sort of, like, this guy carrying this big moral stick, you should be like this, you should be like that. And they say, oh, he was a moralizer, uh, he's just kind of boring, and you know, all he talks about is moral issues. Or you also get that, you know, he was basically super right wing, and he gets associated with people from that period who were really far to the right which he wasn't at all. He was definitely from the left. He was just different. And so there has, there's a call from people who know Camus to return to the text of Camus to really look at what he's saying. And I think what he is saying is, right, there is this struggle, this, you know, the, with the myth of Sisyphus is the idea is like, there is this struggle, right? And it's really perseverance. It's a question of perseverance in the struggle that is what life really is about, right? And how we can figure out our minds that this is a struggle that's gonna happen over and over and over again. And that's just kind of what life is, right? It's kind of depressing, but in some ways he feels he has some sort of optimism about
2: it. Right. Like to live, he says, you know, is a is a value judgment in and of itself, which is something I hadn't really thought of. To live to me always sort of seemed like, you know, the most basic <laughs> yeah. most basic requirements. But, you know, he emphasizes that that choosing to be alive in this world and living through, you know, the process of being human is is a judgment in and of itself, which I find really interesting, especially in light of the plague and
1: sort yeah. of the current moments. Yeah, and actually I wrote down a quote from his book The The Rebel when he was talking about like what it meant to be like a citizen or a human in a country. And basically he just says that the absurd man or the hero, or the, the person who's revolt, it's like he's like a citizen or she or he is a citizen of the world that is always always feels like they're exiled from their own country right? And he said that someone that's a citizen of the world or citizen of that country always feels like they're in constant exile, but it's like this exile that allows one to continue to want to make things better or to want to continue keep build, despite the fact that maybe one's country is not doing things that one agrees with, right? But to live with this fear of despair, just the despair at that feeling is what for Camus ideally would be to continue to push one to keep going, right? To to keep going in, in light of all of this, right? Because that's just the nature of things is that that kind of person is always going to feel exile even within their own community because they're always going to want to be in some ways trying to make it better or make it better for others, not for them just themselves, but improve it or protect it or defend it. And that's sort of the status of when one wants to defend one's country or one's world, they have to live with the idea that that they know that this is going to be really hard. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's going to, I mean, it's really simple to say, but it's kind of what he is saying is that there's going to be this constant feeling of exile.
0: Yeah. And it makes sense. I mean, like the, to be part of something, if you become part of it, you are complicit in whatever is wrong with it and letting it be how it is. And so that the exile out of it, and yet also be, he wants to do both. And so, yeah, it, it makes sense. But if he wants this progress, if he wants this kind of true, not just like being alive, but having a sense of what it means to live and to like to promote that, he's always like pushing that. And I always wonder when I read him, I'm like, can people do this? You know, can, can most people do this? And it's interesting, like you said, with the he saw world war two as a time when it was possible because Whenever I read the plague, I always put like the, the Taru character, you know, like he, he sees as a version of Camus, of course, like every character, right. but there's certain limitations to that exile, you know, and, and he seems to overcome it for a moment there. But in the end, it's a sad ending for at the end of the plague there for that.
2: Well, and I think he, he's one of the characters, too, who illustrates the risk of, of losing abstraction, which we right. can talk about more. But like he and Panalu and some of the other characters, it initially sort of feels like their struggle is to to lose that abstraction. But there's this enormous risk that comes with it, which I think we see in a lot of Camus' writings, this idea of fighting through something, accepting the responsibility for the bad parts of what might be happening in your country while still, you know, fighting for something better and that he kind of acknowledges in those characters that it really is not easy at all and that it could even cost you your life. And so I think that is kind of an interesting aspect of the book. And I was thinking, Jennifer, when you were talking about people who continue to sort of like love through all of this hardship and to work for better things, I thought it was really fascinating in your essay that you profiled these two, these two characters, not characters, people that you know, in your, in your neighborhood. And I, I really love that because it reminds me of sort of the structure of the plague, where he says at the beginning, you know, we're going to look back at this time with, you know, a first person account and documents and accounts from people Mm -hmm. who were there at the time. And so I love that your essay paralleled that structure. Right. uh, (laughs) You wanted to talk more about how you thought to profile these people, how you went about it, because it's really fascinating to read. And they're also both people who are not from France themselves right. originally. So, right. And I'm not from
1: France, so <laughs> <laughs> we're all exiles. And we're all feeling that exile. Maybe it's because we felt the exile. And I would have to say that my condition of exile is probably nowhere near what these two people are feeling. But to have those borders closed and you know to not be able to go back, it's the first thing that's ever happened to me since I moved to France. I've always been able to take a flight and go and see a family or friends if I need to and their regular visits, but the idea of like, when will I when will I ever see them again? I and mean, that was really, and you asked one thing, that's one of the things we talked about earlier, is like, when did it really seem real? And it was really this moment where I was like, wow, I can't, I may not ever see my family again. What if they, they get COVID-19 and something happens and I'll just never, and that was like this really big moment. So, but back to write the, the structure, as you know, I was supposed to write an article when I was going to go to Kazakhstan on this World War II memorial in Kazakhstan, which has kind of so this sort of interesting mythologized status, which I thought was kind of interesting. But obviously, the day before I left for Kazakhstan, I got a letter from the Kazakhstani government saying that I would have to spend two weeks in quarantine on the Kazakh military base. And I decided not to do that.
2: <laughs>
1: and so that kind of prompted me to think, oh, I was really upset because I was, prepared to do that and excited about that trip. And I started thinking about the plague and it's everything started just happening. Like it all seemed to happen like in one day, the the quarantine, the shutting down, the closing of schools, everything just kind of going dark. And so I thought this should be a much right about the plague since I owed you an article. So I was like, okay, look, well, we'll start. So I started just sort of, I guess, in a very scholarly sort of studious fashion reading it. But it seemed to be kind of This point where I wasn't reading the book anymore, but I was kind of things that were I was hearing on the news and that I was reading and I was experiencing all of a sudden felt like suddenly like I was like writing the book. I mean, it was just so strange, and I was like, "Wow, this is there's something really like I have there's some sort of or or the 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 book is being written by the events on the outside. So it wasn't the book rereading the book and like, oh look, this is this this is that. But it's things happened, and then I read it, and so there was a strange sort of relationship with the contemporary world and and this book. And so I realized that I couldn't just stay inside Camus and make some comparisons that I really needed to... Be much more attentive to the things happening outside. So I kind of, like I said, the start of the essay started Camus sort of looking out with these sort of the concepts he's talking about, like abstraction, things like that. And then in the essay, then I kind of go into that area, which I talk about the media and how we could relate to the media. And then at the end, it goes to like actually having those voices speak, right, and not narrated through the media or through me or through Camus. And I think just, it just was just how my experience of living here in Lyon, and going through the quarantine, happened. Is that at first it's it's very you know abstract, then I was glued to the media, and then there's nothing to be said anymore, and there's this sort of darkness that falls, and walking around outside only being able to go out in the in France, we had a really strict quarantine. We were only allowed out one hour a day, and we had to have this special paper and our IDs, and we could only go out for like necessities and so this, those outings became incredibly important, right and I found myself. Holding on to every little interaction that I had. And so this guy Walid is, is on the corner, and <laughs> I went to him like almost every day. And so we began this conversation, and I just realized I was like, this is what's happening. This is, he's doing, he is Dr. Rieu. He's doing exactly what Dr. Rieu is doing. And also my friend Yasminas, who, who I ran into several times because her mother lives in this area. And she was telling me about this woman who has five children, who's telling me how she's running around Leon caring for all these other people while caring for the five children. And, and I just felt that was really what, you know, that one of their voices to take over. And I felt like if anything were to remain of this situation of the coronavirus, I would want those voices to remain more than anything else. I think they tell the most about it. So.
0: They do. Yeah. I want to thank you for that too. Cause I've read so many like Camus plague pieces and i and I feel like as you just described there and reading your piece, you capture the spirit of what he's trying to do, what he's experimenting with in the novel form, and as you're saying it's not it's not to get away from an abstraction that you have not just talking to the people but treating the things as their history as is happening as a lived experience and shaping it accordingly. I think Camus is very much acutely aware of the the way that people can use. Are to divorce themselves from experience and I mm-hmm. like how this essay won't let us do that and by kind of modeling off like the, the pattern the form of Camus, but also engaging with experience in your own way like you're saying like there's this kind of magical thing where history seems to be enacting what's going on and you feel that reading the piece so it's appreciated it
1: so. yeah right in some ways there are there are ways to abstractly read the plague too right you know what is it really saying right I mean if it's just an illustration of what's going on, or just a mirror—that's kind of an abstraction. That's not really offering anything new to thinking about what this epidemic is to us in our in our moment of history, and and what it will mean for the future. It's it's you know not just about a mirror or a screen. It's about it's about humans. Right. And so there's a great line, and I think it's Tahu who says it. I'm not sure. It could be Rombert. And he says something like, "Yeah, you know, man is an idea, or the human is not an idea." And so it was kind of a reference to some of these ideologies, you know, like Stalinism or or Nazism, which reduced right man to ideas, which and reducing a man or a woman or human to an idea or right, allows them to no longer be human, right? So it creates a space for them to be considered as subjects, as as rats, as vermin, and can be killed or annihilated, like we saw during the Nazi regime and also in Stalin's regime as well.
0: Yeah, that's the best thing about because it's Rambert, I believe. And like yeah, he I says, think it's Rambert, yeah. And because he wants to escape, right? He wants to go see his loved one. He's like the exact opposite of an ideologue, right? He's like, it's right. not an abstraction. It's it's love. That's what matters. Right. But he's not the answer either for Camus, right? He's obviously part of the problem at the moment, right? In this plague type environment, which is like what I like about Camus Austin, like you mentioned earlier, is that he is a rigorous thinker, right? And he doesn't ever give that up in terms of like, he he says, yes, we should reject that. Those ideologies. Yes. The, it loses the sense of the individual and abstracts, but also he, he doesn't just go to the other way and say, Oh, the easy solution is just follow what you love because that isn't sufficient either. And that would not be rigorous thought. And so I like how he's always in that struggle, you know, going back and forth, never, never simple.
2: I was wondering, Jennifer, okay. if you had any insights into how Camus' philosophy sort of changed between, like, The Stranger and The Plague, because it, both of those books sort of obviously have a similar soul, <laughs> the same soul in charge of them, but they reach really interesting and different conclusions, and to me it feels like there are certain ways that Camus kind of corrects or even redeems some of the faults of Meursault from The Stranger in The Plague, and I just was wondering if you had any extra insights into that that we might not know.
1: Well, there's a couple like cycles of Camus' work. And so his first cycle, which I think was like The Myth of Sisyphus, The Stranger, and I'm drawing a blank. It'll come to me. But so these three works are kind of considered what's called the absurd cycle. And so they're sort of categorized as works in which he was kind of exploring this absurd notion, really sort of this. Kind of existential notion of human. So the absurd, which is sort of this complex contradiction between what humans are and the reality of the world they live in, and how this is how this is sort of hard. And these are things are coming up against each other all the time. And how how do we deal with that? And so so, for example, in *The Stranger*, it's very much about an individual, right? It's about Meursault who kills the Arab on the beach, and he he's not judged for killing an Arab, which is kind of also a commentary on colonialism too, is that he's not judged for that. Finally, he's judged because he was supposed to have a certain moral reaction to his mother's funeral. And they found that because he didn't have that reaction to his mother's funeral, he didn't cry at his mother's funeral. That was why he was, of course, right, guilty of everything, right? Even though he was really guilty of this murder too, the reason he was actually judged was because of that. And so I think it's just much more about the individual. And then the second sort of cycle of his works are called the cycle of the revolt. And so it's sort of like the next step. Revolt is like the next sort of stage in the absurd. And the revolt is, includes the plague and the rebel. Actually, I think the fall. I'm just thinking when the fall was. Anyway, so it includes those books. And so the idea about revolt goes along with the absurd. But the idea is like revolt is like this. It's like a state of mind in which the individual resolves to kind of have a certain resistance against this this absurd configuration of life. And that resistance is to keep sort of being able to find a way to persevere with all of this. And so another jump that from the stranger to the plague also could be seen is that is that resilience, right? That we don't really see in Merceau. Merceau just kind of keeps going, but he doesn't really, there's not really a fight. Whereas in Rieux, he there's a fight, there's this individual and there's this sort of perseverance and there's a fight and there's also the notion of the collective right it's not just about the individual but it's about the collective like this notion of revolt has to be introduced in this world because this world needs to be changed that this there are certain ideas in this world that need to be fought against in a a much more sort of aggressive way so it's going from sort of from perseverance in an absurd world and to sort of persevering with the idea of like resistance and revolt and rebellion against that which goes with right this collective notion of resisting against regimes that that inflict arbitrary deaths and treat people as arbitrary objects that makes sense
0: it definitely makes sense yeah yeah
1: but yeah There it was a big shift and it's kind of interesting because when he was writing the plague he was in France and he was caught in France. He was he couldn't go back to Algeria to where his wife was because the invasions in North Africa had started. And anyway, so he couldn't go. So he was blocked in France. And he was actually, he was right outside of Lyon and getting over another bout of tuberculosis. So he always struggled with tuberculosis. That's why he didn't like finish his studies and a whole bunch of things because of this. And so he was kind of, he, he kind of took this individual predicament and he made it something, I think, it was was a turning point for him when he realized that it wasn't just about him, right? And, and he had to sort of also, this had to be brought to a level of the collective.
0: Yeah, and it speaks to something like within him, like you mentioned earlier. I mean, the way that people understand an artist or understand a person, they want to say like, oh, it's just that one book, that's who he is. And to see that growth, the cycles, right? And that seemed to have almost at times they, they contradict each other in terms of where they're orienting ourselves, where they're pushing our right. And that is something I, again, back to like Camus, the struggle within him his whole life, he never settles. And that's part of being human and remembering our humanity is continuing to change and not settle in that sense. You mentioned beginning the first man, like that third cycle, I never hear much, I guess, about that. Like, do you have any thought where he was going to go with that? Or his ideas beyond the plague and the fall are where there is to go?
1: I think that, I don't really know how to name that cycle, but I would say that I think I think he was also a much more, I would say maybe personal uh, literature. I think he was really trying to write a work of literature and much more so than a work that incorporated an ideas of philosophy. And I think that when he was writing The First Man, he had been separated from Algeria, right? He had to leave Algeria. He had to leave his mother, Nation. He, had to, he was dealing with all of this. He had been ostracized, brutally ostracized from the community, which Jean-Paul Sartre was the head of. And so he, I think he, he was coming back to maybe his roots. I mean, I think it was maybe more of a move to literature, right? And, and the way that his own life could be sort of seen through looking at, you know, creating a, the fictional character of his father and of someone looking for his father. Although that book has a lot of resonances. It's kind of like a, I would say it's kind of like a Tolstoy or maybe like a Dostoevsky where he, where this, there's, he events a character, the son character is looking for his father and he's just kind of going through all these different steps of discovering his father. It's not just, he's got this quest, but he's also sort of stopping along the way and sort of examining all of these different sort of parts of his father's life. Uh, he's looking at different parts of Algeria, different parts of France. So yeah, maybe, you know, just it was, he had also, like I said, he was sort of coming to grips with a lot of personal things too. His wife was also really ill. She was, I don't know what she had, but she was admitted to, I guess what they call, would call then insane asylum. I'm sure there's a much nicer word for that now, mental hospital. But That's what it says in his biography along from a long time ago, but through, through, he, she was mentally ill and she, she received like electroshock treatments. So it was, um, yeah, I think it was personal toil that brought that book to fruition.
0: Yeah, no, that makes... And I like how you also said like that movement toward art because you see that at the end of the rebel, how he's talking, you can see him kind of moving there as seeing art as a way out of the predicament that he's been in philosophically for Mm -hmm. a long time, which is unfortunate in a way because I've always liked Camus myself because he seems to be like one of the rare people who joins philosophy and art, you know, like he's able to, without making one worse than the other, like, and I don't know how he does it, but and it's interesting to think towards the end of his life, what he would have done moving towards that space of art. I have a quote here from the rebel. I just want to say at one point, cause I love it. Rebellious art also ends by revealing the we are and with it, the way to a burning humility. I just love this idea of a, the we, mm-hmm. but then that burning humility, like it, it guides us to that, whatever that is. I, I find that incredibly
2: powerful.
1: Yeah. And I mean, humility is a big, is a big theme with Albert Camus. He, he's constantly coming back to, to humility. And that we have to be constantly aware of our of our humility, and once again, sort of avoid abstractions. So, for example, the characters in the plague, like Panelou, right? All of a sudden, like Panelou, he he's like, the plague is because his first, in the first part of the book, the priest is like, oh, the plague is here because, you know, we're all wicked. And I'm going to give a sermon and tell everyone that the reason that the plague is here is because we're all wicked and we need to redeem our sins And this is our punishment. And this is our wake up call. And for Camus, he would say, well, yeah, but that's, that's, that's so egotistical and narcissistic that actually we could have some, we could have that much of an influence on like God. Right. Or if, and of course, obviously he's, I don't Well, I mean, pretty much an atheist, I guess he always has a very interesting relationship to spirituality, but right. That, that we could, I mean, he finds that incredibly pompous, right. That we could, and he finds it also an incredible abstraction from what the real reality is. So if, and I'm not, trying to say that this is, I'm speaking through camera, but if, if it's because we're wicked and that, that we pray and we don't do any other things, then we're not doing what we're really supposed to do, right? I'm not saying that prayer or anything is not helpful, but if one is told that's all they have to do, right, then we're not looking at it in the right sense, right? We're not going to take the right action to stop this. If we have another idea of what it is, then what it really is.
2: Mm -hmm. I love the character of Panelu, too. He's so fascinating because, like you said, he starts out with this, you know, sort of Jeremiah that he delivers, and it's really well attended. And then toward the end of the novel, you know, he does the second sermon, which is much more poorly attended, but it, it kind of ties in with what sort of the we are that Mike was saying that he reused notices that he stops using you in his sermons and he starts using we and it's right not that long after that that he becomes you know another casualty of losing his abstraction really and he passes away and i right. love that they don't know why he dies like they can't prove that yeah. playing and that the final verdict is just doubtful case and uh I think right yeah it's a fascinating character i really liked how he developed yeah, and
1: there's that great discussion between Rieu and Panalu after the child dies. Right, yeah. And it's such an interesting conversation because they say, I think Rieu says to Panalu like, you're interested in saving the soul. I'm interested in saving lives. And there's this, you see this really like fundamental difference here. He goes, Rieu's like, you know, great. I'm not worried about the health of the soul. I'm worried about the health of the body, right? I want to save lives. That's my, yeah. you know, that's that's my preoccupation. And so we kind of really see there that that's, in some way, that's sort of Camus, like, very absurdist anchoring of what this issue is. And I was thinking about your essay, Mike, about Viktor Slavsky. What is war? It's about dead bodies. It's about body pieces. It's about violence, right? And this is what it is. And as, as long as we don't look that in the, in the face, then we're not going to be able to do what it's, what really is necessary to stop it. Right, And so that's why when Panelou says, I'm worried about the health of the soul, Ruiz, Ruiz says, oh, no, well, you know what? I'm worried about the
2: health of bodies, right? There are people dying.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so,
2: And he a, tells Panelu, I think we just have really different ideas of love, which, yeah. yeah
0: <laughs> and <laughs> he's thinking that little boy dying, right? And like the, right. the universe that justifies that. It's just like that famous problem you get back and, right. and your mat's off and all that kind of. And yeah, but I, I, I guess with that, I mean, how Camus is able to, he's sympathetic to Panelu's position. Like he hes yeah. he, he builds him as a character, which I don't know, like given, I mean, where Camus is and where his sympathies are, right? I do definitely, I like that debate a lot. And I like how in the end of the day, Panelu does help save bodies, right? He's on the team right. too. It's a nice touch by Camus and t- gets back to like your earlier point, Jennifer, about like this being a moment when, and he's conceiving France, you know, coming together, you know, and. Is there a space without us having to like? We can be in disagreement, but we can still come together, right? Which is something I constantly wonder in our world today uh, right. for a variety of reasons. But yeah, it's a brilliant exchange there.
1: Yeah, and and but I think what's and that's why I think Camus. Um, there are people who call him a moralist and someone who's very judgmental, and this exchange we kind of see right here that he's not judgmental. In fact, we kind of see Ruyer doesn't judge Penaud. I mean does, even though it's because of reasons of spirituality or religion, which Ryu is not in agreement with, right? He's still really, Ryu and Kemi were still kind of maybe all trying to say that, you know, at the end of the day, right, maybe it doesn't matter our reasons for doing it. It's that we do it, right? We all come, to, we all come from different backgrounds and different beliefs and different religions. But the point is, is that we all need to take this action right and if it takes this to make us do it or that to make us do it it doesn't matter i'm not going to judge you for the reasons like why but you know uh, there i mean there's an ultimate right there's an ultimate ideal of what it should be but the fact that Panelou actually helped right we understand camry and ryu or camry wasn't judging him right he was wasn't agree he didn't agree with him right but he also wasn't judging him
0: yeah it's well i love that yeah because that's a possibility in this world we forget that you know yeah. you can disagree and not judge but that we conflate the two, and I think that's part of it. Yeah. He was always insistent, like that. There's that space, you know. Yeah, I love that.
1: And that goes back to like his argument about France and this Algerian question. I mean, he really, he really thought that France could be a place that included different, different kinds of people, right? If it was a France that could include Arabs, it was a, it was a France that, if France could do what it did during the resistance, it could be a place that could include Arabs. It could include include Jews. It could include all of these different kinds of people, and that's really what. France was about. And so that was this sort of utopian hope for a, an Algeria with ruled by a very benevolent France, which unfortunately didn't happen. Yes.
0: That takes us. we have a little bit of time left. I wanted to touch on your New York Times piece. and so like think about like the the France that Camus imagined working the US experience a little bit here and imaginations of the US. I mean, I, I really appreciated that New York Times piece for a lot of different oh, different you. reasons and the bravery of it in terms of what it's doing, what it's talking about, and that kind of, I know, communion insistence on just revealing what's there, right? And not being afraid of avoiding abstractions, really, and like getting into those personal pieces. And I also kind of found it interesting. I, I can't help but read the comments in New York Times on the sides, right? And, like, <laughs> how, and how they immediately,
2: yeah. They, yeah.
0: exactly the opposite, they, they jump. And, and no matter, yeah. they, might have, they have their opinions, they know what's what, and they yeah. have, and they, they build from that. And I guess if you could speak briefly about the background for that essay, I know that's a whole other. Well, channel. first
1: of all, I have to say, right, there's, what's the saying? It's something like all press is good press, right? Yes. And so I think it's really good. I mean, I think that shows people really have intense reactions to putting into question a certain idea that we have about this moment because it's such a painful and important moment. And it's, it's an emotional thing. And so I, I I, appreciated every single one of those comments, right? Because I feel, I feel like that, shows that this is something that is is hard <laughs> and makes people react. Well, that's a long story. But briefly, growing up, uh, my grandfather, so we're going to the subject of my book, uh, my grandfather was a concentration camp liberator. And I grew up, I was very close to him. And I grew up and he stayed friends with particularly one of the survivors from a camp he liberated, and our families uh, remain friends even to this day. I go and see the son of this man who unfortunately just died, or and I still see his wife. I keep in touch with his grandchildren, and so I always found that my grandfather was, it, he was, and this man their relationship they were, it was not. It was he was just for lack of better words, he was incredibly you know traumatized by this event of war because I think this event of the war put everything into question that he thought about what he was doing as he was a doctor in the war (laughs) but he you know he he, this the open the liberation of the camps I think my grandfather at this time he felt that all of the things that he had done and he had seen and he had he had been through he'd been through the battle of the bulge he'd seen horrible horrible casualties horrible fighting and I think he felt in some ways, still as a doctor, I think he still had feelings of power that he could help people. And I think that when he had opened that, he, that this, when he found this camp, he realized that he couldn't, right? And he kind of had this, this sort of moment that he thought, wow, you know did we help that at all, right? We didn't stop this. Or like, how could this have happened, right? And so it was this moment, I think he put, it was this existential moment (laughs) for him. And so I grew up kind of always with this notion that this was incredibly painful. My grandpa was, he kept going back to the survivor. He was, and then growing up, I started learning about the Holocaust in school and never really learned about the liberation. And then I went to the Holocaust Museum. And when you walk in the Holocaust Museum, the first thing that you see in the museum are the liberators. And there's a sort of discourse about our heroes, our heroes and heroes. And I kind of started thinking, I was like, wow, that's really just not how I grew up thinking about this moment, right? It was not a heroic moment of liberation, but it was an incredibly painful moments that, that didn't have anything to do with victory or her- heroism, but a meeting of you know, humans to humans and just what happens in this moment when one human sees another human in inc- an incredibly horrible position so degraded. And I wouldn't say they were real acts of heroism, although they were, If I mean, by all objective sort of accounts, they were, but I also think that it was much more complicated than that. And so that was sort of the origin of that article. And I also, before I did my PhD, my master's dissertation was on liberators. And I sort of traced the representation of the liberation in a few Holocaust survivor memoirs. And I also traced the same moment in, like, a, I went and did the research on the archives at the Holocaust Museum, the Liberator archives. So I read tons and tons of, well, not tons, I read all of the <laughs> Liberator testimonies that are there. And I found the same thing. I found the same sort of, the Liberators that decided to talk and talk about their experience. It was all this, it was, the, there was all one thing that they said that I found really interesting. And they all said, we are not heroes. We are witnesses. We are not heroes. We are witnesses. Mm-hmm. And that going back in their memories this is one of the things that never left them is that there wasn't this sense of yeah victory or conquest or or anything like that it was just complete human degradation right which they could do nothing about
0: it makes sense and yeah that and you get that in Camus. i mean the whole hero discussion the plague right i mean ryu is not a hero and if listeners are out there definitely check out the new york times piece (laughs) that jennifer wrote because it it really gets at that hard thing you're just saying jennifer it's like they're doing their jobs right but Mm -hmm. this is a sad moment right this is something that is not a victory for human beings right exactly right and if you think in human being terms that's what Camus is always trying to position us towards human beings so
1: right and in that article and i agree i understand where this is coming from these men couldn't help the way they reacted but that's kind of my point. I'm like, exactly. They couldn't help. There was lack of control, right? They couldn't help with the way that they acted, right? And this is something that is, I think, well, at least for my grandfather and some of the other liberators that I studied, that this was this was just a horrible thing, that they didn't act the way they wanted to act or they couldn't do anything, right? There was this loss of, the, of what they thought had a meaning in war, right? And And at this moment, all meaning went black, right? they were incapacitated or they couldn't act the way that they thought they were supposed to act as soldiers, as as men, as as what they thought they were supposed to be.
2: Right. And I think that kind of accounts for some of the knee-jerk reaction because we rely on that hero narrative to soften some of the worst moments in human history or to shape the stories that we rely on, you know? And so I just thought it was really brilliant of you to, to point that out to say, you know, this degradation touched everyone that came in contact with it, and what does it mean to just be doing your job at the worst moments in human history? And I, I think that essay is so good because it breaks down a couple different layers of abstraction. You know, you you show the layers of abstraction that are broken down when these soldiers arrive at these camps because they didn't know what to expect. Like you said, they didn't know exactly what they were sometimes. They thought maybe they were a different kind of camp than what they were going to see. And then you also kind of reveal the abstractions that we depend upon as readers of news and what we think we're going to get compared to what we do get. And I think that that, that does kind of account for for some people being a little bit upset and saying, well, they couldn't act how they felt. They couldn't yeah. act the way they wanted to. So it's interesting because I feel like the progress will be made in some kind of in-between space where we can get the people who rely on these narratives to read the kind of narrative that you supply or, and to, you know, kind of open their minds to an alternate interpretation that's incredibly well thought out by someone who's written her master's on it, you know, and thought about it her entire life. What does it take to combat these knee-jerk reactions that some people have, not all, because there were an overwhelmingly large number of very positive comments on your essay, but, you know, <laughs> it's just how do we reach people who want to really hold on to the narrative they've already been given? Is there a way to, does it take catastrophic events to change people's minds? Can they achieve that kind of understanding just through reading. I mean, I would hope, but I don't know.
1: Well, I I think that there's maybe not just one way, but many ways. I think definitely art and reading, obviously, we're all literary people, we believe in the power <laughs> of reading and, but also teaching, teaching and education. And I think, too, the mythology of, I think, a certain idea of what war is, what a soldier is supposed to do, what a soldier is supposed to be. Going back to my World War I blog, one of the things I kind of wanted to show was that World War I was kind of this really big break in the idea of the soldier as a sort of this very sort of traditional concept of a soldier, of the man who fights without complaining, who's a hero, who's stoic. And it's not that that was something that wasn't seen beforehand, but it was kind of the first time in history in which the actual soldier was able... To voice something other than that, and so it was a really unique moment in history because the writing of that period of time allowed for this sort of break in that narrative, in a lot of ways. So that that's what I find interesting about World War One is that it it was the break with a certain kind of writing about war by people in war about war.
0: Yeah, and it comes across definitely in everything you've written, and I feel like that break, that ability to open up that space for conversation, for re-seeing what we thought we knew about events and about people is valuable and I think we're all attempting it in our own way, but I think Jennifer does it especially well in her work. And so please check those out if you have the time. Thanks for tuning thank in.
1: So, I want to thank you for the work that you do on Raph Barantry. I think it's so excellent to have this mix of voices of from the military, but also from people not in the military. And I think it's this kind of thing is I think this is the. I really do. I think this is the kind of thing that we can maybe help us be more empathetic, it's having these different views. I I love Rathbun Tree. Oh good. Yeah, <laughs> um, Rathbun
2: Tree loves you.
1: <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, it's just so interesting. I mean, I, I I really enjoy this. It's openness, but it was very rigorous, and so um, it's great.
0: Yeah, that's great to hear. That's that's awesome. And hopefully you can contribute something else in the, the near future. And, and again, thanks everyone for tuning in. Thanks for showing up, Jennifer, and talking with us and helping us Thank through you. Camus. And I guess everyone have a good month and tune in next month for another WBT.